Hey everybody, we are Martin, Robert, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hey everybody, welcome back to Snakes and Otters. This is episode 43. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So tonight, we are going to talk about one of our heroes, and I'm the guy who suggested doing this because this historical personage... I think does not get his due credit uh, as a person who helped rescue the United States. You've always liked him. I I think that's been very true, yes. Yes. And what we're talking about tonight is William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, Irascible, um, vain uh, to some degree, uh, a combative person. A little ornery. Ornery. Um, Mentally ill. At points, potentially. Possibly. It's been been Um, argued. But uh, a person who ultimately um, was as important to the preservation of our nation as, I I, I feel, as Ulysses S. Grant. Certainly, I think the two of them together uh, were just an incredible combination. But Sherman, once once he has established himself with Grant, and he has been given independent command... Well, certainly he doesn't get the glory that, that Grant does, because obviously Grant does play the bigger role in defeating Lee's army. But yes, he, he, he does. And you know he shapes a lot of uh, things post-war, too, because he stays in the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let me just give you a couple of books, um, like with Grant, where I've read three separate biographies, plus I'm still... Uh, reading Bruce Catton's Grant Move South, um, I've read quite a bit on Sherman. And one of my favorites is Sherman, A Soldier's Life by Lee Kennett. And this one is quite a bit of a psychological study. Um, talks a lot about the personality and you know what it is that's making Sherman tick uh, in this biography. And... Mentally ill, no, but a narcissistic personality is kind of Kenneth's final conclusion. Well, by today's standards, that's technically a, a mental illness. Yeah, so um, it's not debilitating, but it, it explains accused, his behavior. He was accused of it during his life. It's the reason I mentioned it. Yeah. It's because that was often how he was criticized. Yeah, well, he lost the command here in Louisville. He was right. commander of, of, the, I guess, of the Department of Kentucky or whatever at one time for a short time. And at the beginning of the war, and um, he felt like the Confederates had uh, 100,000 men ready to invade at any moment, and he yeah. had nobody. He must have been corresponding with McClellan. It's like, they can't have 100,000 over there. I've got 100,000 over here. <laughs> yeah, so very, very yeah. nervous when he was here in Louisville um, commanding. Um he battled with depression, I know. Yes. That was a big and, thing for him, which is untreatable at the time. He had to kind of go home for a little while, sort himself out. The other book that I really like is not exclusively about Sherman, but he's one of the five commanders treated in the book, and it's Savior Generals by Victor Davis Hanson. Oh, one of our favorite authors, yes. Yeah, I have about 12 of uh, Hanson's books. And, I have several uh, myself, too, yes. Um and he, th- this book specifically is about generals who rescued a war um, and did so 
um, with with the best intentions also. Not just that they were successful generals, but they were true believers in the effort in that war. Okay. So, um, so guys, thoughts first before I get too much farther down the line here. Well, <clears throat> I think Sherman is... Uh, I don't think you can consider Sherman without considering Grant, first of all. Yeah. Uh, because they worked so closely together up until uh, the time Grant went to Virginia and uh, Sherman was uh, started his march to the sea. Yeah. Uh, you know, granted, I think Grant obviously gets uh, the lion's share of the credit for ending the war, but Sherman definitely contributes greatly to that because the Georgia was pretty much the industrial base for the Confederacy. Nobody had really done much from the north in Georgia. Uh, it was relatively safe. And so, by disrupting everything in Georgia from that in that march to the sea, that disrupted supply lines to uh, to Lee, mm-hmm. uh, because there's not a whole lot of industry uh, in any of these states. So disrupting in any one is going to put a big crimp in production. Uh, plus, it scared the hell out of everybody. Yeah, uh, I think one of the things you have to credit him is uh, both him and Grant is the idea that warfare is not a series of battles. It is a war. A, it's a single war. And it is nonstop. Correct. And Civil War, as the North fought it the last two years of the war, is the first time you see that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, one, one, of the, yeah, well, one of the books that I really like about this, and I've mentioned this before, is Russell T. Wigley's actually over there on the shelf, uh, The American Way of War, which postulates that at this moment, Grant is the pivot point. Him and Sherman together are the philosophical change that we Americans fight wars differently, and indeed the world follows us from this point forward. Takes a little while to catch up fully. It, it does because part of that's technology. That's part of it. Uh, but World War One was still fighting. I don't know how we end up going back to that. But they were still fighting World War One initially, as Europeans had fought previously all their European wars. Not like this. When the Americans came in, we're trying to fight it as Grant and Sherman had fought it, and it was a total change. Mm-hmm. Well, I think again, not to segue too much on World War One because right. you know me, I'm done with World War One for a while. But I think that that. Uh, it very quickly, not much later, because you know we only come in in the last less than a full That's year. Right. Uh, once you settle into the the trench warfare, it really is a, a long war. It's continuous. There are still major battles in any continuous war. Right. Uh, it's just the front is the same. Uh, it used to be prior to the uh, well Civil War, uh, even with it and Spanish American War. And some of these other things that we do get involved with, there are still lots of fronts. Mm -hmm. That was the first one where the front didn't really move much. In the U.S., in the Civil War, the front can't be that static because we're just too big. It's almost impossible to have a static front in this country if somebody were to invade. You're either going to invade and slice the country in half... Uh, or you're going to get stopped somewhere, or, you know, it's it's going to be it, it just our size. Mm-hmm. Wigley's contention was the d- real difference here was the fact that the war here with Grant and Sherman was taken to the people. It was yes. not just, see, it was you want to destroy the other side's ability to make war, and that involves civilians. You want to force the conclusion you want to force a political conclusion by making war so hellish, war is hell, that's Sherman, 
on the people that they force the end of it. Yes. Yeah. And that was that's Grant and Sherman. Yeah. War, Clausewitz. War is politics by another means. That's right. And Grant, Grant and Sherman kind of push back and say, no, no, no. We want politics to end wars, not to yeah. be wars. They they were the two generals that realized mm-hmm. the political implications really of every move. Right. Um, even Grant early on in Vicksburg, he understands the political implications of. If I go back to Memphis and start over, that has political ramifications for Lincoln mm-hmm. um, and to the Northern people in general. Yes. So, well, he also he didn't want to give up whatever he get, right. whatever he captured. So he, Grant is, like we talked about with him, he's this first guy that says the whole point of this is coming to grips with Southern armies and destroying them. Halleck is very much a. Well, we got to take this town and garrison it. Then we got to take this town and garrison it. Grant is the guy that realizes all you're doing is sapping your strength right. by garrisoning these towns. Abandon them, forget about them. The only, the only object is to get to come to grips with Pemberton or Lee or whoever and destroy them. And that's what he does in Virginia. He comes yeah. to grips with Lee, and it's two swimmers struggling until they almost both drown. Right. Well, Lee had tried the very same thing. He he understood that. That was yeah. his intention all along. Yes, but he he fought he fought too defensively. Correct. He didn't have he could yeah. have. Yes. Granted, any chance the South had to win that war was early. The longer it dragged on, the the more likely it was the North was going right. to win. It took a while to get everything going. It took forever to find good commanders, but. Once they did, yeah. it was inevitable. Right. So that's that's Grant's great strength is that understanding. Where Sherman then goes one step better than that understanding is he also knows that Grant's method is going to be bloody, and it is. Yes, Virginia's very very bloody. Again, it's two spent swimmers. Um, so Sherman knows I cannot repeat that performance. I cannot be hip deep in blood and save Lincoln. I've got to employ other methods. Well his force was was a different kind of force too. Yeah. And he wasn't grappling with a similarly sized uh, enemy. I mean he didn't exactly run rampant through the South, but he didn't exactly have the same kind of foe. Well, so, also, the commanders he was facing were far different than Robert E. Lee. Yeah. yeah. But he understood. I mean, he only made really one serious, real frontal attack the whole time from Chattanooga through the March to the Sea and yeah. up to... Um, North Carolina. Up to North Carolina. It was always a flanking maneuver. Maneuver Johnston or Hood or whoever out of their positions and flank them again. And then, by extension, exactly right, he took the war to the people who started it in his mind. That's it. Yeah, that's correct. Um, It sounds harsh for us, but for him it was absolutely consistent with the the people are making war against us. And not just, not all the people of the South. Right. He really felt it was... Those those in power. uh, And he wanted to punish them and take their property away and Hanson makes the good point of if he had just butchered the southern armies he'd have been thought of very differently 
Because he's still, to this day, reviled in the South. He still is, that's it. But he destroyed their property instead. He destroyed the property of the big landowners. <laughs> their ability to make war. And, you know, you, you can take someone's property away and be more of a demon than if you just slaughtered all these poor soldiers, these, you know... Well, that, and that's that would have fed of, the lost cause even more. Yeah. Well... So he, he, he saved the lives, really... Of thousands of poor Southerners, by not destroying these armies in the field, and instead, he could have. instead, well, you could also make the argument that by committing warfare against the populace as opposed to the armies, that that sort of thing also contributed to thousands of deaths because there was a lot of starvation and suffering in his wake because he's operating behind enemy lines, what we would call Indian country today. Uh, mm-hmm. the military uses that. Uh, it is, it's, it's a, you know, he's going to have to pick up his supplies from the, the population that he's attacking, which he does as part of this total warfare. So, I mean, he's trading one form of suffering for another. Mm-hmm. Now, whether one form is greater in number, I don't know. There's probably no way to really know for sure. But, you know, it certainly... The whole the whole key to this though is it is a different way of thinking about how to end a war. Yes, uh, you know we talked about it in, uh, in a few of our episodes before. Wars used to be are you have these relative by today's standards relatively small sized armies ten five ten twenty thousand. Then it got really big when you're hitting fifty thousand, and you would have these single battles or a few, small number of battles, or you have a battle and then you retreat back to your city. Uh, much the way the South and the North fought the war in oh, the yeah. first two years. Of, Absolutely. You know, that was still very much that thinking, even though they were dealing with relatively modern technology and the ability to, to bring you know, literally hundreds of thousands of troops to a battlefield mm-hmm. uh, at, at, a, at a time, a single battlefield. This is unheard of. I mean, yes, Napoleon marched across Europe with, uh, I believe, 700,000 men. Right. Uh, but... That's a little bit different than what we're talking about here. How, how what percentage of those men were involved in uh, battle at any one time? Uh, and, but you know, again, it's a, it's a different style of warfare. It's an extension of Napoleon, uh, a Napoleonic warfare in many ways, but it's a perfection of it as well because technology has moved forward. Yes, uh, and uh, it's it still is more about the maneuver uh, at this point than uh, Napoleon would have been very happy with that. But that's kind of where it bogs down. Petersburg changes everything. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I think what uh, what Sherman managed to do. Uh, this is what makes I think him a brilliant commander. I presume he, he, he developed this philosophy and executed it relatively early. He maybe didn't start with it, but I think he must have ended up with this. And that is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Martin, he, he liked to flank his opponent. So he's constantly maneuvering. He's forcing his enemy to react. Ultimately, his enemy has to chase him. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you're traveling through an area they have already ravaged and depleted. You are now the starving army, even though you are operating in your own territory. Mm-hmm. Whereas Sherman is able to keep his army fed and clothed, because they can take whatever they want from the local populace, and he is able to be the army that has the advantage because he is taking it to the civilian population, decimating 
that aspect of the of uh-huh. their society. Knowing, of course, that once they are out of resources, the army has to starve. Exactly. It's what happens to Lee eventually. Right. It just happens in a different way. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's interesting. Um, and again, reading Bruce Catton, you start to see that this is something that Grant and Sherman develop together. Mm-hmm. They steady each other. Uh, Sherman's famous quote is, you know, he stood by me when I was crazy. I stood by him when he was drunk. Now we stand by each other always. It's more than that even. They are learning and developing together during their time in Tennessee and Mississippi. And Grant does his thing later. Sherman does his thing. And um, you know, again, to stress, Hans, part of Hanson's point is because he doesn't end up in that same sort of bloodbath as Grant, he's able then to provide not a bloodless victory, but a, a relatively low-cost victory in Atlanta. Well, he's dealing with a, a, a smaller army yeah. uh, against him, where and he can maneuver, do whatever he wants, really. Because yep. his point is, I, can, I am going to defeat you, by not engaging you directly every time we, yeah. I can. Because that, that's your point about defeating uh, the population, forcing the surrender. Whereas Grant, he was doing something similar. He was maneuvering. You know, he Whenever he battled Lee, and he lost just about every single battle mm-hmm. up until the final one, until there was just nobody left to fight. But he didn't stop. Right. Whereas McClellan and everybody before Grant went off to lick their wounds. Grant said, lick them on the way. We're going to the next battle. That's right. And so he eventually... and go home. He eventually actually ended up south of Lee. Uh That's how much he maneuvered. And by doing so, he cut Lee off from the Shenandoah Valley, which is the breadbasket, feeding the Confederate Army. And so he did the same thing to Lee in a different way. So it's very much the same philosophy. It's just executed with with slightly different tactics because the foe he's fighting is different. Lee had to be anchored around Richmond. Because he had to protect the capital. Yeah. And, of course, Lee, he's the Army of Northern Virginia. He's not the Army of North Carolina. And there's your old-style thinking of yes. a place is important. Grant and Sherman have let go of those places. I think even Sherman famously, he's he's told that some army's invading Tennessee again and or invading Kentucky. He says, well, if you'll go to Ohio, I'll give him rations. My business is down south. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, I had not heard that one. That's yeah, really good. I'll give him rations. A, that's a Sherman, you know, because, again, the, the idea is the plantation owners are the ones who have made this war. These The soldiers in the Confederate armies barely have shoes. We've already encountered that they're old men and young kids. I'm tired of, tired of the blood. And if I can win a, a relatively low-cost victory... I can guarantee Lincoln winning re-election. Yeah, you're, I was hoping you would get to that. Because yes, that's when you talk point. about political, Sherman get, deserves a whole lot of credit. He, he rescues that. Lincoln's re-election campaign. Correct. Well, that, that's Atlanta, probably Atlanta is ours and fairly won is a sensation. That's true, because even though Grant was beating Lee by getting beaten by Lee, that doesn't play well for the public because yeah. it doesn't you know even though he's making progress 
it still looks like he's losing battles. So I'm sure that that doesn't play off he, as well. Even Mary Lincoln, even Mary Lincoln's like Grant's a butcher, right? Oh my God, Grant's well, a butcher. After, well, after the after Death Cold Harbor was, oh, yeah. was enormously, you know, and it's the one time he let, as they say, let his blood get up, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to all right, let's move on. We, do, we shouldn't he, be doing he, this. Grant would say for the rest of his life, his one regret was that last charge at Cold Harbor. It shouldn't yeah. have happened, and may yeah. die. And Sherman knew that if he was hip deep in blood like Grant. Exactly. The 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 McClellan would have an advantage in '64, despite right. the mess that McClellan's in. Talking about, you know, a, a platform that's all over the place, and a, and a political coalition that has opposite desires that he's trying to be at the head of. Um, more blood loses Lincoln the election. Right. So let me ask you this, uh, because I'm not familiar with uh, any any of the correspondence on how much this is going on, but uh, is there uh, correspondence between Grant and Sherman or Sherman and the War Department or Lincoln to back this up that he's thinking of this politically? Or is this what we are it's, surmising? It's more his, I would think his memoirs. Okay. Which he did um, write, yes. Yeah. And, and again, it is this idea that he sends the War Department, the, the announcement, Atlanta is ours and fairly won. Um, he knows what he's accomplished. Um, Sherman's a smart guy. He knows what he's accomplished here in taking Atlanta. And he knows that as he moves south, uh, and, and really Grant does pretty much turn him loose. Yeah. Uh, Grant was yeah. not sure it was going to work, but he's like, well. I trust him. Trust him up to this point. I, I, I can't call him off now. Yeah. Well, you either send him or you don't. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's not like today where you can sit 5,000 miles away and manage a, a battle. Yeah, and monitor and send in air support and all that. Yeah, right. Turn him loose and let him go. And you hope for the best. And that's what Sherman, uh, he, when he was cut loose. And again, learning that from Grant in Mississippi. Grant cut himself loose. From supply and communication. Right. I mean, he wired Halleck. Hey, you're not going to hear from me for a few days. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got no way to get you messages anymore because I'm I'm, I'm, I'm cutting loose of the, the base that I made uh, once I crossed the Mississippi below Vicksburg. We're just moving on. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, that I think is the one of the great um, lessons of, of not just warfare in general, but one of the lessons that can be learned from the Civil War, and that is that prior to Grant and Sherman, the Northern generals tried to win by playing defense. Uh, you know, what's the famous quote that you love? Uh, you know, we have driven the invaders from our soil. That's, that's right. And, when, and Lincoln, Lincoln says, is, when will they understand it's all our, our soil. soil? Exactly, yes. Uh, it was Meade that said that after Gettysburg. Meade after Gettysburg, yes. Right. Uh, by trying to, they're trying to preserve the Union by preserving those that were still in the Union rather than reuniting the Union uh, in many ways. Lincoln understood that, but the generals, for whatever reason, didn't. Well, that's because... Up until the, again, I, I said this many times, up until the Civil War, we didn't speak about our country the same way. It was the United States are, not the United States is. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, you, you see that most clearly with Lee. Lee would have fought for the North if Virginia had not seceded. Yes, he said that many times. Because he fought because he was a Virginian. And 
that is the core of why I think the Civil War happened. Is that uh, again? It, you know, goes back to what we talked about uh, not long ago, a prior episode, and that it's that tribalism. Uh, only there, it was at the state level. We were yeah. all Americans, but only but, that only went so far. But that only went so far because your state was more important. And to be fair, uh, your state, uh, almost by design, the country was uh, put together that way. Uh, that the state was more important than the mm. national level. Well, the Civil War essentially was a federalization of the United States. In many ways. In many ways. And you could say Sherman and Grant certainly helped move that along uh, because of what they did. And certainly the impact that Sherman had on the country. Uh, the historians, only historians and those that are armchair historians like us. Like us, yes. Uh, can truly appreciate that because it's a very subtle impact uh, for most people. One, they're not going to know who Sherman is. And the next thing is that you have to, it, it, because it's a way of thinking and it's so difficult for that to be understood how that impacts things that come after it. Uh, you know, we struggle with it sometimes and we like to think of ourselves as at least somewhat intellectual. Well, and somewhat and, knowledgeable. And somewhat subject. knowledgeable. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing uh, that guys like him are so fascinating especially when you compare them to guys like lee it's a different mindset absolutely that's and, what's so fascinating and you know to me it's one of the the, the great tragedies of uh the war is in addition to that human cost you had men who but for an accident of birth could have been a great general on the other side Let's think about Lee leading the army. Because he was offered command of the entire command, uh, just as Grant had it at the end. He Lee was offered that at the beginning of the war. Right. If Lee had taken that, and maybe he wouldn't have been the same general. He wouldn't have ended up the same way. But I've got to think Lee would have won that war a lot sooner than the, than the, than the North did. Uh, just because of who he was, because he was a good general. He was dogged. He too. would have won lots of early battles. I don't know. I don't know he ever would have come to the revelations that Grant and Sherman did to win the war. Well, that's possible, but I think where he probably would have is that he would, if he had accepted command, he wouldn't have been fighting for his particular state. He would have been fighting for all of them. So it's a different philosophical outlook. Mm -hmm. And I, that's one of the things that weakened the South. I mean, they had so many disadvantages that, that it would have been so difficult to win. So I said, the longer the war went on, the less likely they were ever to win. Yeah. Um, but part of that was, you know, they were a confederation, not a union. Uh, and that's a subtle difference, but I think that's very important. Yeah. And I think that is partly behind how Sherman and Grant fought. You know, they were not fighting for individual causes. They weren't fighting for 11 different states like they were in the South. They were fighting for all of them. I don't remember how many states there were in the, in the North yeah. at the time, but, uh, you know, they're fighting for some 30-some-odd states, not yeah. just the ones in the North. And it's a bigger cause. Yeah. Well... This has got me thinking that we covered Grant, talked about him as a visionary. Um, 
Sherman, um, again, a particular hero to me because of being a visionary in a different way than Grant, but also a visionary, understanding that he could win the war without devastating hundreds of thousands or well, 50,000. Tens of thousands. Yeah, of tens of thousands of Union, or I'm sorry, um, Confederate, Confederate uh, enlisted, conscripted. Uh, I mean, he knew this kind of right from the start. I mean, when he's at the start of the war, he's head of the Louisiana Military Academy or whatever it's called, what would eventually become Louisiana State University. Oh. Uh, he's he's the, I don't know, the chan- not chancellor is not the right title. He was headmaster or something. And at when Louisiana secedes, he says, you Southerners are crazy. What are you doing? You have no chance here. So he sees right from the beginning that this is a crazy struggle to be in. But it's got me thinking that seeing Grant as a hero and Sherman as a hero for saving Lincoln, and you know we haven't talked about Lincoln. No, oh, well, that would true. be that would be a fantastic. Uh, we need to do some Lincoln episodes. I don't think you can put Lincoln in one episode. Well, the we would almost have to limit it to Lincoln of the war because that's because really when you think about Lincoln prior to the war becoming president, he's mostly a failure. <laughs> that's <laughs> yes, one of the things that so is so Grant and Sherman. But so were Grant and Sherman. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. one of the things that's so fascinating. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Both. Yeah. All three of those men failed miserably at everything they attempted prior to that. Uh, it was often said about Grant: the only two things he ever succeeded at were marriage and war, and that's it. Now, it's not completely fair to Lincoln. He he was a, a well-known Grant. attorney. I was he Grant. Was. I was talking about Grant. Did I well, say but well, no, you no, were you talking about Grant. Yes. But I was saying that all three men were failures up to that point. Is a little unfair to Lincoln. He was a fairly successful. He was small town lawyer. Yes, he was. He yes. was well thought of. Yeah, he was. He was a great. He, he was thought of well because he was a great speaker. Uh, it just politically, I think he won just one election prior to becoming president. He was he House House of Representatives. Yeah, well, like it was one like term one term. House. <laughs> uh, you know, nowadays you'd be you wouldn't even be a footnote in history, much less become president. Uh, so, but it's a different time. Yeah, a different time. But I, I just find that that fascinating. Again, Sherman as a hero. Being an innovator, uh, pushing the war to an end in such a way that he would come to be reviled by the South, even but, at, but at the same time saving thousands of their lives, and saving Lincoln's reelection. But we're not—we haven't talked about Lincoln hardly at all. That's true. Well, we'll have to put him on the schedule. We'll have to put him on the schedule. That's correct. Yeah, because that's a lot of. Uh, uh, Lincoln. We're gonna do our research, and we're gonna do Lincoln. Well, yeah. we really got to dig. Uh, That's dig correct. Well, us. you know, we might touch on him uh, next uh, next month when we talk about uh, uh, dirty elections, because uh, there was certainly a lot of contention over the eighteen sixty election. It's not dirty like we think of for the others we're gonna talk about, but we can, we might mention him just to yeah. keep Lincoln alive, metaphorically alive. Yeah. Uh, until we but get it, to but him. talk about somebody where you've got to really separate man from myth. Oh yeah, to correct. A huge degree, yes. very much so. Same Fortunately, lead. it's all been written down by by many many people since then, and mm-hmm. the the truth has been uncovered. Well, uh, it's been done uh, because people recognized right away that he was going to become a legend, 
uh, and did. And well, he was going to become a legend either for having preserved the Union uh-huh. or been the guy over, who presided over the death of the Union. That's correct. Uh, he's still considered by many the greatest president we've ever had. Yeah. I don't think I would agree, argue with that. Washington is still number one for me, but Lincoln yeah. is number two. That's right. There's there's a reason when we had President's Days, you would show both their pictures and nobody else's. Yeah, I and mean, there was a reason. Well, it used to be they had separate right. holidays. Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday. And you could, yeah. Um, certainly there are a lot of presidents not worth celebrating. But. Absolutely. <laughs> we could talk a long time on that. Perhaps that's another episode <laughs> we can do. Yes. But uh, Well, but you know what? How many presidents get their own song like James K. Polk? Okay. <laughs> well, I don't. Th- I, I think I told you all. Uh, I was in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, over the summer, and they have down in their downtown. They have life-size statues of all the presidents on the corners. And I took my picture. My daughter was with me uh, of several of them. And as I walked past the, the statue of James Buchanan, I looked at him and I said very clearly, "Sorry, dude, but nobody wants to take a picture with you." <laughs> I think we could say that about several. Yeah, I think he's uh, he's the bottom of the list. Yeah, I would say he's the right at the list. Yeah, um, I mean, I joked about uh, James K. Polk, but you know, actually, I would put him as one of the most successful presidents because basically he did everything he said he was going to do, and then didn't run again. It's like did everything I was going to do. I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, I don't need a second term. I'm done. Yeah, goes yeah. the entire Southwest. <clears throat> so, gentlemen, uh, uh, a lift a glass of 1792 to Abraham Lincoln. Oh, to, absolutely. To Honest Abe. That's right. 16th president. And William T. Sherman. That's right. Cump, as they called him. Yes, Cump. He went Cump. by, he went by yeah. his middle name. I, the biography is, is very interesting. Uh, he loses his parents. Um, he has a kind of a foster family in the Ewings. Uh-huh. He marries uh, the daughter. And that's uh, his, his foster sister, kind of, uh, becomes his wife. Um he, his, well, that's not hinky. <laughs> his foster father is a senator. Uh, his brother becomes a senator. His brother's congressman, yeah. Uh, he's, he's tied in. The Sherman Antitrust Act is oh. his brother. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah. So uh, Sherman, his brother served as a uh, congressman and, and senator for a long time. Right. Was still in the Senate um, when uh, McKinley's elected. Wow. Know, and ends up kind of... As a as a capper to his career, is invited into the cabinet. I think he's uh, secretary of state for a while for for McKinley. Well, Incredible. You know, something else you got to remember too: Sherman's history and his fame did not end with the war. He was commanding general of the United States Army through 1883. That's almost 15 years that he is in. That's not always a good thing because this is during the Indian Wars, and he's yep. responsible for a lot of that. Yeah, and that's there's not yep. a not a real good legacy with that. He was very effective, unfortunately, in many ways. And his protege in the army became the commanding general after him, Phil Sheridan. Phil Sheridan. Phil that's Sheridan. Right. Uh, it was pretty much about getting the railroads to the west. That's right. Yeah, yeah and that's everything a, the military was doing after the war was all about getting the railroads to the west. Right, and that is, it's not a really good record uh, now, looking yeah. at that. Yeah, so again, Sherman, cantankerous, irascible, uh, hates the press, uh, could have been president anytime he wanted. Most likely, yes. Uh, all he had to do was accept the nomination, uh, but that's very famously his, it's called a Sherman Statement. When you say I will not run, <laughs> I will not accept if nominated, and will not will not, not serve, serve if elected. elected. That's Sherman. That's a Sherman statement. 
Um, but again, a lot of this, a lot of the same kind of things run through these heroes for us. Kind of an extreme individualism and an extreme, but an belief. extreme individualism for the greater good. Yes, but a, a belief in a, in that cause. Also, um, yeah, he had a clarity of vision, though. I mean, he's the one that coined the term "war is hell," and he knew this, as you stated, before it ever started. Yeah, and nobody else understood it, uh, with the exception probably of Grant. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's revi- where he is reviled. I think it's for mistakenly believing that he reveled in what he did, and I don't think that's true. Oh no, no he he yeah. he's it's and I think we've got enough of his memoirs and records to really understand that he was very melancholy over what he had to do, right. and he was far more restrained than even Grant was. Grant was criticized for being yeah. the butcher. Sherman, not so much. Yeah. Right. War as hell was not a statement made in glee. Not at all. No, no. And it's. It's clarity. It's very much what drove him and Grant both. And again, what drove Sherman in particular to try to minimize the bloodshed is the alternative to Lincoln is McClellan. And their fear is... given it all away. Yeah, their fear is McClellan signed some sort of armistice. That's right. And... The Union is not stitched back together. It's dissolved, yeah. And well, it's split in half. Exactly. And not only that, but the warfare is not going to end. If there are two nations... We're going to war again. And going to war again That's over right. the West. Well, over, over the, the West. West uh, or, you know, the, whatever. Everything. Everything, everything. exactly. Uh, if you look at every good alternative history series, there, yeah. whenever the South wins... A very logical and very believable reason for going to war uh, multiple times, uh, whether yeah. it be it's going to just pop up again and what what over they, and over and over, and over again. They right. feared this the same bloodshed, the same thousands upon thousands of deaths over and over and over. Well, that's and that was Lincoln's vision too yeah. on this because his his passage of the Thirteenth Amendment. If you saw the uh, Steven Spielberg movie which I've seen many times. It's one of my favorite movies about Lincoln. Uh, his zeal to f- pass this amendment was with the same idea, knowing this issue of slavery will continue to come up unless we kill it here and now forever. And that's why we have to have the amendment. Yeah. Because the, the, the South to. was ready to come back. They wanted to continue slavery. McClellan would have absolutely let them have it. And yeah. Back to where you started. And all those deaths would have been, been for naught. Yeah. It, not only would all the deaths been for naught... And all would have all the bloodshed would have meant nothing, but it would have repeated. Correct. It would have started over. Certainly, because those it divisions was, that was their fear. Those uh, divisions and, will not be solved until slavery yeah, is ended. Yeah, and it, another Sherman, you know, is war is the remedy our enemies have chosen. I say we give them all they can stand. That's right. Um, and and again, all of this is you're right. It's not with glee. It's with this recognition. The only hope is to save the Union. Save the Union now. And, and put we, this back together. We must defeat them. They have to be subjugated and defeated. And that's why it was so important for him, again, to take the war not to the conscripts, not to the 14-year-old boys, but to the doorsteps of the plantation owners. They started it, and they've been sitting back, letting the poor of the South Yes, most of the men in the South who fought did not own slaves. Yeah, that's right. And... and he wanted to take it right to those doorsteps, 
And that's why he's so revived. He destroyed their property and not and not the young men of the South. And yet he saved a nation. Yeah. Him and others, yeah. of course. But. but that's why it means a lot to me. But uh, it does point me towards, you know, well, we haven't even talked about Lincoln. It's all right. Yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yep, we'll have to. Well, Francis, what's next? Oh, sorry to steal your thunder, Martin. But well, that's okay. We're we're at forty minutes, so I think that was a good spot to wrap up. I on think so too. When we it did, comes to Sherman, absolutely. Well, there's no way we could ever do him justice, but we did our very best, and I know we did a fine job with that. We're going pop culture next time. Oh, I can't wait for this. Oh, one. I know. This is your subject. Yes, it is. It is Bond. James Well, Bond. one of your subjects. When I said that, it could very well have been a Star, Star Trek. Trek. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't used a Star Trek uh, quotation in several episodes now. Well, yeah, I just mean in general. Two, that's, maybe. You know, two. Or, that's you know, correct. That's not sure. many. I, I, it also but yes, is, uh, we're, this is Bond, James This is Bond. going to be a different style of pop culture. It's not it is. Sci-fi. It's very much so. And I am uh, in, this is not just movies. This is the books. This is the whole enchilada of what does this mean for us culturally? We've been doing this now since 1953. Stay tuned. It's some really good stuff. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel. Yeah.